broadcast of uh, Big Questions in American Politics. Today we're answering the question, uh, when did African Americans become full American citizens? Um, citizenship may seem to be a simple concept, either someone is a citizen of the United States or not, yet African Americans pass a full citizenship the ability to access all the rights and privileges due to a citizen has been a long and difficult one. Um, first, I'd like to start with some, some basics. Uh, Maggie Price is going to be our, our first uh, speaker here. Uh, Maggie, what are the basic rights of all U.S. citizens? So the United States is founded on this idea that citizens are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as their basic human rights. Um, as the Constitution was being written, um, those opposed to the ratification of the document or anti-federalists argued that the Constitution should include a Bill of Rights, um, which was one of their like major arguing points. Um, and some Federalists, like for example, Alexander Hamilton argued, you can't compile a list of all of your human rights. Um, but anyways, the convention ended up passing 10 amendments to the Constitution um, that would be considered our Bill of Rights today. Um, and some of these rights include like the freedom of speech as we see um, in the first like, amendment, um, the right to bear arms, and the right to a fair trial by jury, et cetera. And were these uh, rights granted to all residents of the United States? Um, so, no. So, like a citizen, um, in the like, just as a definition, is defined as quote a legally recognized subject or national of a state or commonwealth, either native or naturalized. Um, and so, if we think of the term like legally in that definition, um, legally, um, like other races and genders in the Constitution at this at like the point in time when they made it, um, did not have access to the same rights. Um, before the 14th Amendment, the Constitution really would only recognize those as, that were white men as citizens. Um, aside from the use of the word men, um, that today we think of just as a generalization for men of all races as well as women, there is nothing that explicitly said, like this is a citizen, but this is not. Um, but if we look at like the context of our framers, like demographic and their ideals, it's not really hard to see like the intent on who was to be considered a citizen and who wasn't. And even though someone may have been born in the US, such as like an enslaved person, um, which is what we considered today to be a citizen, it did not guarantee them to all of the rights and protections under the Constitution. So you said that it doesn't specifically say this group is a citizen and this group is not. Um, does it is it that explicit when it comes to slavery? Does the Constitution explicitly endorse slavery? Um, so that's just, uh, so people have different arguments when it comes to this. And those who believe that the Constitution does not endorse slavery says that the idea of the U.S. being found, founded on slavery or on these racist like ideologies is a quote, like myth. Um, they argue that James Madison opposed the pro-slavery delegates and that he believed it would be wrong to admit in the Constitution the idea that there could be property in men. And white Northerners adamantly denied the fact that our country's Constitution was an endorsement of slavery, while pro-slavery delegates argued that um, they did endorse slavery because they wanted the Constitution to uh, protect what they saw as their property. And 
On the other hand, like it's worth noting that while slavery is never explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, there are 10 clauses in it that protect slave property and the power of masters. Um, and the refusal to mention slavery in the Constitution is really like is seen as nothing more than damage control. Um, and like to save themselves from embarrassment um, because domestic and foreign critics called the framers and Americans hypocritical for allowing the institution of slavery to continue while boasting about this idea of freedom and personal liberty. And one side argues that Madison opposed pro-slavery delegates, although he was a slave owner himself. Um, the other side argues that he was really only like that in the public notes of the convention most of the notes that we have from the Constitutional Convention were from Madison, and um, it said that he changed a lot of them and revised them after the convention to kind of like make it look better to a wider audience. Um, and then when Madison was actually selling the Constitution to Southerners to promote ratification, um, Madison claimed that the original intent was to protect their slave property. So, Slavery then a, a national institution or just being left to the state and localities? Um, so those who believe that slavery was not endorsed by the Constitution typically believe slavery to be a local institution. Um, since James Madison opposed pro-slavery delegates so adamantly, he they say he, quote, quashed the efforts to make slavery a national institution and that it would just have to be tolerated at the local level. Um, however, the other side of the argument believes that not only is slavery endorsed by the Constitution, but that it is protected at the national level, making it a national institution. Um, slavery was actually protected from Congress as they were forbidden from regulating the slave trade for two decades following the Constitution's ratification, and non-slave states were required to return enslaved peoples to bondage. Um, and Madison argued that the Three-Fifths Compromise was an example of how the national government was planning to protect property and therefore the institution of slavery as a whole. Uh, this showed that Madison believed slavery to be a national institution because not only was Congress's powers limited when it came to the legislation regarding slavery, but the national government also protected it and protected slave owner rights. Uh, they did this by allowing the slaveholding states to augment their share of delegates in the House by adding part of their enslaved population to their census counts. Whose idea was it to, um, to, to go with this three-fifths compromise, and where does it come from? So James Wilson was a northern delegate at the Constitutional Convention, and he proposed the idea of counting enslaved persons as three-fifths um, of a person, and that was all just to gain support in the South for the national government. Um, and this decision, I think, was less made about morals and compromising on how much these enslaved people were worth, and it was really more about focusing on this power balance between the North and the South. Um, the South wanted their slaves to be counted as a whole person, which would boost their representation, representation within the House of Representatives. And even with the three-fifths compromise, the South was 60% overrepresented in the House. So it is easy to imagine why the North may have opposed the counting of a whole enslaved person. Um, so some argue that it was an overall loss for the South. Uh, Pro-slavery delegates pushed hard for slaves to be counted as whole persons. Um, but over time, the national defense of slavery actually shifted to the Senate, and that's where the three-fifths rule didn't apply, because there was only two people from each state for the Senate. 
Um, and on top of both of these things, um, there's also a tax liability in counting three-fifths of enslaved people. Uh, the federal government could impose what's called a head tax, which is a uniform tax imposed on each singular person. Um, and others argue that the three-fifths compromise was a major boon to the slave states. Um, so the tax liability, some people argue, hardly even mattered in those states because it was the house that taxes emerged from. And with the South being 60% overrepresented, the federal government almost never passed a head tax. Um, it is also argued that the powers delegated to the House were disproportionately affected by what um, others called slave representation, which was that extra 60%. So for example, the House has the power to militia in case of an insurrection, and the, quote, slave-represented House got to decide whether or not slave rebellions counted as insurrections. So they could basically use the militia to put down slave rebellions if they so desired to. Um, so they kind of got to use the House powers to their advantage. Another like example of this would be um, in like the Electoral College. It really magnified the white South's power to select the president, for example, Thomas Jefferson. Um, to go back to the question of, of whether the Constitution actually endorses slavery, um, does the requirement for uh, free states to return um, enslaved people who, who escaped the North back to their to their owners. Doesn't that show that the Constitution is pro-slavery? So like the questions before, um, it's kind of a matter of how you interpret the situation and interpret how the Constitution directly, like what it directly states. Um, so the pro-slavery delegates won a clause that would return any escaped enslaved people in the freed states to the slave states and back to their masters, but um, what people argue is is that there was really no quote like official way of enforcement, um, and the wording to the actual clause was so vague um, that like legally there was no like body of enforcement. So there was no like police force specifically dedicated um, to returning these escapees, um, and so they argue that the clause didn't really hold any ground, but however, there were still plenty of individuals who took it upon themselves to um, enforce this clause, even to the point when people were just like grabbing people without even being sure they had the right person. Um, so the escapees were not in the clear in the North, even if there was really no legal force enforcing this clause. Um, and so that's kind of like what the other side argues and that like the clause kind of speaks for itself that regardless of wording, uh, the wording of the clause, it was still something that showed the Constitution's support of slavery. Let's zoom out a little bit more and, and just talk about um, is, is the United States actually based on race? Senator Bernie Sanders very famously uh, made that argument. I'm wondering what, what your take is. So Bernie Sanders um, charged that the US, quote, in many ways was created um, from way back on racist principles. That's a fact. And I would say that the US was founded on these racist principles. Um, personally, personally, I felt like the arguments about slavery not being endorsed by the Constitution are weak ones. And they're ultimately debunked by those who believe that the Constitution endorses slavery. 
I definitely agree that the lack of mention of slavery in the Constitution was nothing more than just damage control. Um, it was more just a image to the US really than a, like a moral thing. And in reality, I don't think many of the founding fathers cared about the morality of slavery as much as they did getting the Constitution ratified. Um, even the Northerners who tend to be the abolitionists going forward didn't care for freedmen or escaped enslaved people to even come to the North. Um, they were more worried about the South growing economically than they were about freeing the enslaved. Um, men argued that freedmen should either be sent back to Africa um, or even have a state that was reserved entirely for African Americans because they still did not believe them to be equal even if they did oppose slavery. Um, and while you may be able to argue that the Constitution does not explicitly endorse slavery, it's a lot harder to look at the history of our country and deny that it was not founded on racism. And that doesn't go only for African Americans. Um, if you look at the history with the indigenous peoples of North America as well, it just goes to show. Do you have any uh, evidence of what African Americans at the time thought of uh, what was going on? Yeah, so um, there was uh, Frederick Douglass. He was um, an escapee um, in the North, and he actually became a leader in the abolitionist movement. Um, he made a speech on the 4th of July titled, What to the Slave is the 4th of July? And in the speech, he made many points about the state of America and what it was actually like to live as a freed African-American. So Douglass asks, uh, quote, are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that of the Declaration of Independence extended to us, end quote, and goes on to say, quote, I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not me, end quote. Here, Douglas is asking a rhetorical question. He knows that African-Americans are not extended the same freedoms and liberties as white men are. Um, the irony of an African-American man being asked to speak on the 4th of July, um, expected to celebrate the very same country that denies him his full rights and freedoms as a citizen is not lost on Douglas. He says, we are called upon to prove that we are men. Of course, he doesn't mean men in the terms of biology or gender, even terms of like what we think of as like manliness now, he means to prove that they are more than property and more than these like barbarians and animals that like whites thought of at that time and that they have to prove that they too are humans. And so Douglas denounces the American system saying, must I argue that a system thus marked with blood and stained with pollution is wrong? Here he asserts that the American system is wrong and that this should honestly just be an obvious fact. Um, the system is stained with the blood of both the freed and the enslaved. And the pollution he mentions is the institution of slavery, which he calls America's greatest sin. And as you know, that sin led to the Civil War. Following the Civil War was a period called Reconstruction, um, where uh, once slavery was abolished, um, we were faced with the task of rebuilding from the war, but also trying to figure out how uh, how to integrate, how, how to um, find a new way to live with these formerly enslaved people. Um, Cassie Wing, uh, you've been doing some reading uh, of some scholarship done, or some, some academic pieces written by the, the scholar W.E.B. Du Bois. 
uh, and he specifically focused on this uh, reconstruction time. Well, first of all, what was reconstruction? Well, like it does imply within the name reconstruction again, like like you said, the repairing of a country that essentially tore itself apart, you know, throughout the Civil War and stuff like that. Um, and the goal essentially was to, you know, advocate and enfranchise recently, like freed men, like slaves that were recently freed, and to, you know, put in place legislation that could kind of set up a template of sorts to um, give, like, the bare minimum of rights to African Americans. Um, so when it came to these formerly enslaved people, what, what needed to be done and, and who actually did it? Um, so what needed to be done particularly, like since the South had like this increase in political power because of the freeing of slaves, like there was a lot of political pressure to do that like very fast, like it needed to be done and it needed to be fast. And um, this population was um, widely illiterate because they had not been given opportunities to be educated um, or like places to safely meet. So particularly there were three different institutions that uh, very much so contributed to the enfranchisement of African Americans. There were the churches, there were the free public schools, and then there was the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau was, you know, very much about like backing the enfranchisement of African Americans, um, and the church was primarily important because it was very much the beginning of that um, presentation of or giving them a sort of like amount of rights because it was like instilling a sense of organization and autonomy among them. Um, and while the churches were segregated. It, like, again, was a place where um, black people could safely meet and discuss. And churches um, had essentially led to the institution of, like, free and public schools to a certain extent. Um, and then the Freedmen's Bureau uh, primarily consisted of just not only the people who um, fought in the Civil War, but also educators and scholars and something that's important to note is all three of these institutions did work collectively they weren't like separate so those were the people who essentially did it um how did um black people get the vote during this period so um because black people had fought alongside the union to preserve the union um if they had not given black people citizenship or enfranchisement, um, a lot of the outside perspectives would be very, um, oh my gosh, I forget the word, but like people would be very disappointed in the face and gratitude. I just remember those two words. Um, and again, it needed to be done very quickly because there was such an, in an increase in population, quote unquote. Uh, and um, yeah, primarily um, the Bureau did make a lot of contributions, uh, but it was later like abandoned and then it came down to like just black people as a community like coming to legislative bodies and like proposing certain things, uh, particularly um, that anyone who could write and read well possessed a certain property and possessed a certain property qualification should be given the right of suffrage. Um, 
and the arguments for suffrage for black people were very strong, uh, but there was a lot of Southern pushback. Uh, even though they were given the vote, we still saw voter intimidation. We, you know, didn't see, you know, like, yeah. Southerners essentially just wanted to ensure that African-American suffrage would fail. So that was kind of the well, result. Like, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So after the war, um, Southerners who had rebelled were temporarily denied the right to vote. Mm -hmm. Right, and at the same time, formerly enslaved people were given the right to vote, at least if they could read or help property. Um, I assume this led to quite a few governments actually being run by African Americans. Um, what was the result during this brief period where African Americans could vote but Southern whites couldn't? So, um, like the evaluation of mm -hmm. black Muslim governments. So Du Bois primarily mentioned like the outside uh, perspectives and the accusations that were honed at these black-run governments. Um, the three like primary accu accusations were extravagance, theft, and the incompetency of officials. And while these accusations were somewhat true, like semi-true to an extent, um, they like. It wasn't to the extent that like people were accusing them of at all. And you can kind of expect a sense of incompetency when we're jumping from a population that wasn't given the opportunity to um, be a part of their education system. And then all of a sudden, people who were at first enslaved were now you know, in these governments, which is pretty huge. So obviously they're gonna probably have a couple mess ups along the way heading off there. Mm -hmm. um, and but does Du Bois so he says that yeah there were mess ups but they wanted to hear it as the point. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what are the factors that led to um, to them not succeeding according to Du Bois? So um, the states were not in a great position economically due to the Civil War. So the South was simultaneously recovering from both a war and massive social change. Uh, so there was a very heavy increase in workload and a lot of political pressure in this time. Uh, there was a lot to be done, and you know, a lot of this was very big surrounding that again. Um, and then some of the factors like that were internal, particularly related to morale and stuff like that to a certain extent is kind of what I got a sense of. Um, there was a, there were some two quotes from W. Du Bois that I really think represented this like best was, the ignorance was deplorable but a deliberate legacy from the past and some of the extravagance and much of the effort was to remedy this ignorance. Um, so while there was ignorance that like contributed to those failures, um, a lot of that was, you know, to remedy that, and and the incompetent incompetency was in part real and in part emphasized by the attitudes of whites of the better class, um, and then when um, black-run governments gained the political power, uh, there was a sense of southern dishonesty. That was like a lot of what contributed to like the failures within that government just because 
Um, the political South was formerly defunist. There was a presence of defunist Northern politicians and Southern politicians were you know, very much tempted to profit by that dishonest, dishonesty and to discredit and undermine Black-run governments. A lot of the times there was a little bit of mention of fraud, like there were a lot of bond fraud. Um, and it was through, like presented through good legislation, like by these white Southerners. So like, it's not that they wanted fraud necessarily to happen. Were there any successes? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, in response to the fraud with the bonds and like the debts within the South, uh, Black-run governments were working to pass legislation surrounding the bonds to counteract the fraudulent ones that were going on at this time. And within the legislature, African Americans had actually saved um, the state like thirteen million dollars, I believe, which <laughs> in today's money is yeah. Um, and while uh, Du Bois also mentions that the this, these governments had given them a democratic government, uh, thus free public schooling, new social legislation for the South, they built schools, they built charity organizations, they rebuilt jails, courthouses, bridges. They did absolutely put in the effort to, you know, reconstruct the South. Um, so yeah, I'd say that absolutely is a success that they had that ability to contribute. So what does Du Bois, I mean, he's, he's writing specifically about the experience of Reconstruction and its, its long-term impacts. What is his ultimate takeaway about Reconstruction? Was it a, a good thing for African-Americans? Um, so the experience of Reconstruction, while set up a very good template for like giving the bare minimum rights, as I formerly said, um, it very much demonstrated that black citizenship was not at all like accepted around. So it was a good thing for African-Americans, but the surrounding really did undermine that movement. And there was a widespread assumption that like this experiment would kind of like fail. Um, black people did have to fight very hard for their rights, regardless um, of what they did. There was still a lot of relentless attempts to disenfranchise them. Um, and that experience um, kind of demonstrated that, you know, we still had a long way to go, essentially. Great. Thank you, Catherine. So, um, so Reconstruction ends. Um, the, the federal troops are pulled out of, uh, of the South, and we go into a period that, that becomes known as the, the Jim Crow period. Um, uh, Mia, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, the Jim Crow system and um, how it served to disenfranchise blacks after they've been granted these rights. So the Jim Crow laws were any laws that enforced racial segregation in the South between blacks and whites. These laws were created around the end of what Cassie just spoke about, which was the Reconstruction and the beginning of the Civil War. After the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870, which granted African-American men the right to vote, the South was not in agreement at all with this new right. They were just like, we have to find something to stop this. And so they began to enforce these requirements, um, requirements that were really far-fetched 
for these African-Americans to qualify for in order to vote. Ironically enough, these requirements actually prohibited um, a lot of the lower class white men from voting too, because they didn't meet these requirements either. So these requirements were um, literacy tests and um, po um, tax taxation um, requirements that they had to meet in order to be able to vote. Um, but in this case, even though the poor or lower class white men were not able to vote as a result of this uh, requirement, a lot of the wealthy white elites of the South were willing to sacrifice these lower, cla um, lower class men to get their way. So basically they used um, little cracks to disenfranchise African Americans without outwardly or bluntly making it look like it was a matter of race. Okay. Um, an important thinker uh, and, and uh, figure at the time uh, was, uh, and leader of the African American community was Booker T. Washington. <clears throat> and I know you've done some reading of uh, one of his speeches uh, about the Atlanta, Atlanta Compromise. What was uh, Washington's answer to Jim Crow? Okay, so um, just a little background information on Booker T. Washington, if anybody didn't know exactly who he was. So Booker T. Washington is an African-American um, born on the 5th of April in 1856. His mother was a cook for the plantation owner and his father was an unknown white man. Um, they, had, they had lived under the ownership of their leader, their owners, which were Elizabeth and James Burrow. Um, and when the Civil War ended, Booker T's mom and their siblings, all of them, they were all freed. Um, so they were considered freedmen. Uh, his mom later married and fast forwarding into Booker T's adulthood, he actually became a teacher um, and later a principal at a school for African-Americans in Alabama. Um, this is where he would start to be an activist or advocate for black rights. So Washington saw the difficulty with, pe with black people being able to get jobs and education and even basic rights to vote. He knew um, what blacks were facing during this time, that they were called freedmen um, when blacks were, when freedmen signed contracts with former masters, those contracts were broken. When freedmen tried to get jobs in other places, they were hunted down. When freedmen reported their concerns to local authorities, you know, they were told that their testimony of black people did not matter in court. When, when they tried to purchase land, it was denied. When they tried to borrow capital to establish business, it was rejected. Um, when they demanded decent pay, they suffered violence. And he knew that all of this was going on. He did not want this for society. But he also knew that as long as desegregation was trying to be enforced, black people would never get the freedom that they truly deserved. So I talked about how he became um, basically an advocate, an activist for black rights. And one of his most famous speeches um, where he included these views was on September 18, 1895, where he actually stood in front of an almost all white audience and said that the next move for African-Americans was progress through common labor. And this is actually an interesting outlook on the situation because you see, Booker T believed that the war between black and white would end if blacks were separated from whites. He said, and I quote, the wisest among my race understand that the agitation of questions of social equality is the extremist folly and that progress in the enjoyment of all the privileges that will come to us 
must be the result of severe and constant struggle rather than of artificial forcing. No race that has anything to contribute to the markets of the world is long in any degree ostracized. It is important and right that all privileges of the law be ours, but it is vastly more important that we be prepared for the exercise of these privileges. The opportunity to earn a dollar in a factory just now is worth infinitely more than the opportunity to spend a dollar in the opera house." End quote. And I know that this sounds like a bit of gibberish because when I did the research on it, I was like, Zeke, but what? <laughs> um, um, so I'll break it down to you. What Booker T was trying to explain, at least from my interpretation, was that if blacks and whites would accept segregation and discrimination, blacks would be able to obtain their own wealth and their own culture. Ultimately, through grasping this power, his theory was that they would gain the respect from the white powers. And that respect would give blacks access to education, um, to uh, more freedom of rights, and especially, especially in agriculture, which was something that most blacks knew about because of slavery. Um, Booker T. Washington continued to gain popularity among whites and blacks, and so he didn't just use his forum and this great reputation and, and put it to waste. He networked with some of the wealthiest businessmen and politicians. Um, some of you may be familiar with John D. Rockefeller. Um, he was an American business magnate and philanthropist, and also Andrew Carnegie, who was a Scottish activist and also a philanthropist. And through these powerful connections and networks, Booker T was able to raise generous amounts of money to build small schools and fund the university um, that he was a part of as well. So he used his mindset, he used his um, ability to speak for blacks, and he used it to, to better um, the, the rights and the freedom and the movement for blacks. He also founded the National Negro Business League that promoted the commercial and financial development of blacks. And also, um, what we know today as the National Business League, which was an organization dedicated to ensuring that economic development was the main core goal of equality for African Americans. Um, so he basically used everything that he knew, all of his knowledge, all of his connections, um, and everything basically that he experienced as a freedman and as a slave to help the blacks obtain their rights. Thank you. Um, I'd like to turn now to a far darker uh, side of what was going on at the time um, and specifically ask you about lynching. Uh, what was lynching? When, when and where did it occur? And who was almost always targeted by it? Um, so, of course, I would agree with you that this is indeed a very dark time, um, a part of history. But lynching was basically the public killing of an individual who did not receive any fair or due process. Uh, so it was just like, by fair or due process, no kind of trial or uh, basically a right to have a say or defend themselves. These killings were often carried out by lawless mobs and even police officers under the pretext of justice. So more specifically, in the era of racial segregation, lynching were 
cruel public acts that whites used to frighten and control blacks during the 19th and 20th centuries. So um, they use um, whites use a lot, of, a lot of tactics to frighten and control blacks, and this was perhaps um, one of the more cruel ways of um, controlling them. These acts were, were more frequent in the South, and so lynching was seen as a black American male or a, a black American um, female hanging from a tree. Um, but to be general and not visually descriptive uh, uh, you know, as possible, lynching could include torture um, and mutilation or decapitation, et cetera. Lynching was done in the United States around the 1880s to the late 1960s. And as mentioned before, this is mainly done to put fear in the hearts of blacks and also to control um, blacks socially and racially. Um, lynching, it was a warning to the black population, uh, basically not to challenge the white supremacy. Um, when I did my research, I actually discovered that the highest number of lynching recorded was in the state of Mississippi and almost counted, and, and the amount counted was 581. Um, and then you go on to Georgia, and Georgia was about 531, and then Texas was the third highest with 493 lynchings. Um, and, it's, and it's also important to note that all of the states did not practice lynching blacks. So states like Arizona and Idaho um, and South Dakota, these states were not, according to research, um, stated for lynching blacks. They have no records of lynching blacks. Um, so blacks were the main targets of lynching, but it was not limited to blacks. Some whites were lynched for trying to help blacks or even not agreeing with the idea of lynching. And some immigrants were lynched as well. Most of the persons carrying out lynching were not punished. This was because of the approval of law enforcement. And because the amount of people involved in the lynching could go as far as, you know, hundreds of people. And so it's kind of uh, weird to like put hundreds of people behind bars, especially if you don't know exactly who it was that were, was a part of um, this act. Uh, when I did my research also, I, I um, like I'm saying with this point right here that it was a lot of people that were surrounded around these lynchings. I researched uh, uh, information that had to do with um, a lot of, it was almost like a public scene. So when there was a lynching that was about to take place, uh, it would be almost said publicly so that people can come out and watch this actual event happen. Um, you had like teenage girls and men and men would bring their children and wives to see this public event happening. Um, however, uh, like I'm saying about the authority wives, if whites were ever convicted, it was not for lynching. It was for arson or race rioting or some of another minor offense. Thank you. Um, it makes, from what you said, it sounds like this is a Southern problem. Is that, is that right? Yes, so um, like Cassie and uh, I think Maggie kind of covered, this is more of a Southern issue. Um, this is because that the Southerners, I guess, didn't really want to accept that blacks were now freedmen. 
um, and they just wanted to main, um, maintain um, supremacy um, between themselves. Uh, they were not ready to give up this power and simply like allow them to, um, 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 what, like I can't remember what Cassie said exactly, but the bare minimum rights of blacks. Uh, and so this is what they would, this is what they would do um, in order to try and stop that from happening. Um, I would say that lynching and rice, um, race rioting and all of this, this was indeed a national problem um, because it was recorded amongst dozens of states, dozens of states um, in the in the United States of America. Um, you have places like Cali and New Mexico and Arizona and Arkansas and Louisiana, and about forty or more states that participated in this, um, and so. Although some states didn't lynch blacks, most states did, in fact, practice lynching. Uh, and this is why I would kind of agree that it was on a national basis. Okay. Um, was there any national pushback against this, this wave of, of lynching? Uh, did any organizations form against it? Um, I'm thinking specifically about the... Uh, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. Okay, so the NAACP, um, for anyone that was curious about it, it stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And this organization is kind of self-explanatory. It was formed by both white and black activists in 1909 and it was created to fight the violence and mistreatment of um, African Americans in the United States. It was originally created um, however to fight the race riots that were frequently in, occurring in America. Um, some of the founders of this organization um, include Mary White Ovington and William English and um, like Cassie had covered on um, Du Bois, how do you pronounce it? W-E-B, or W-E-B, Du Bois. Yeah, Du Bois. <laughs> and even Ida Wells. Um, the NAACP actually fought against this. They actually won a case in 1915 to make the grandfather clause unconstitutional. Um, they also created a fund called the Legal Defense and Education Fund that resulted in school desegregation, the decision for desegregating as a school um, they helped in Woodrow Wilson's decision to ultimately try and stop lynching. Um, and they were established as a legal arm for the civil rights movement. They also supported campaigns toward youth violence and they assisted the economic come up of African Americans. They approved civil rights, education, economic status. And these efforts do demonstrate that black citizens were on the rise of becoming full citizens of America. Um, they were not allowed to vote. They were not allowed to attend white schools. They were not allowed to have a decent economic status. Um, violence had, well, um, um, it was a time where the violence was like un unthinkable. Um, and so these efforts were really just efforts that proved that African-Americans were slowly getting their full citizenship as Americans. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to move on to the early 20th century um, 
and specifically talk about uh, race riots. Um, uh, Betsy Miller, you've done some reading about a particular uh, race riot and or so-called race riot. I mean, those that's what is what they were called at the time. What's a, a better term for them, do you think? Well, this particular race riot is now called the Tulsa Race Massacre, which is a better term for it since it was really a massacre. Hmm. Uh, please tell us about it. What set it off and uh, what, what happened there? Absolutely. So there isn't really a clear answer to what started the Tulsa Massacre, but there were several events that helped trigger the violence. So the massacre really started the evening of May 30th, when a 19-year-old African-American man named Dick Rowland got into an elevator where Sarah Page, a young white girl, was working as an operator. So the story goes that while they were in the elevator and the door was still closed, then um, Sarah screamed, and when it opened, then Rowland made a run for it. Now, some people believe it was an accident, that he tripped and fell against her or stepped on her foot. Some people believe that he attacked her and some people believe that she set him up. But no matter what really happened, he was still identified by the police and arrested the next morning. He was then taken to the city jail, which was located in the county courthouse. It was not a good jail. And while he was there, he received numerous death threats. And by the end of the day, a large crowd of angry white people had gathered outside the courthouse, accusing him of you know, molesting one of their own. And in response, a group of armed African-Americans came to protect Rowland from being lynched. And then fighting started when a white man tried to grab a pistol from a black man and then discharged it into the crowd. And then in the following 24 hours, uh, there was a lot of fighting that happened. Police got involved, typically negatively, um, helping the white mob. And a whole neighborhood, a um, whole Greenwood district got burned to the ground. So there were also a lot of factors that exacerbated this conflict. Um, Tulsa at the time was very deeply divided. It was known as a great place to live because it had Black Wall Street, a booming economy, um, but there were a lot of really deep divides. Um, a couple of these were divides between rich and poor. There were some great areas of Tulsa, but there were also a lot of really bad slums. There were deep divides between blacks and whites and Democrats and Republicans. So having a city or community that is really deeply divided is never helpful. Um, and it's especially not helpful when a fight starts. Additionally, the African-American community was on high alert to lynching threats. Only nine months earlier, two black men had been uh, murdered by a white mob. And so this means that uh, they were very aware of the threat posed by the angry mob. And they would do whatever they could to protect Rowland. And finally, the police force in Tulsa at the time was very corrupt. It was actually under investigation at the time of the massacre. In any situation where you have, um, where you need police investigation or intervention like this one, having a corrupt police force is not beneficial. So, um, so what finally caused the, the massacre to end? What brought it to a close? Well, in the end, it took a special train with 100 members of various rifle companies coming up from Oklahoma City to end the massacre. The National Guard that was present in Tulsa also had to move thousands of African-Americans to protective custody on the state fairgrounds so that they wouldn't be murdered. Um, it was only once African-American populations moved into custody and outside forces showed up 
that the situation was finally brought under control. So what took so long? What was, uh, why didn't the state get involved? Well, it took a really long time because of the huge amount of racism present both in citizens and in the government of the area. And obviously the overt racism of citizens in Tulsa played a huge role in the massacre from the very start. But this racism also caused the massacre to be much longer and more destructive than it needed to be, as displayed by the white rioters when they shot at firefighters trying to stop houses from burning down. So the government and police force were not exempt from this sentiment either. There were several times that the Tulsa, Oklahoma, or even federal government could have intervened positively, and they chose not to. For example, the National Guard could have gotten involved at the very beginning when black citizens first took a stand at 2nd Street, but they decided to stand back. And later, the National Guard did reportedly try and hold the crowd back from destroying Greenwood, but by then it was too late. And the police force really did almost nothing the entire time, at least nothing helpful. Many police officers were issued special commissions on the morning of the 31st, which they then abused to aid in the vandalism of Greenwood. There were also reports of six planes circling the area of the massacre early on the morning of June 1st, dropping something into the Greenwood area. Official reports say they were federally commissioned planes that were dropping reports from the air on to those on the ground, but many people believe they were actually dropping bombs or other explosive devices into the area, and this negative government interference obviously helped prolong the massacre. So a point of uh, clarification, you talked about Black Wall Street and you talked about Greenwood. Those are the same place. Yes. And they are uh, just outside of Tulsa or part of part of the city of Tulsa? Yes, they're kind of a sub subdivision of Tulsa. Okay. Um, so uh, it's called a massacre. How many people actually died there? Well, the actual death count um, is highly disputed because uh, it was really hard to figure out how many people died, actually, because bodies were um, not not disposed of well. They were not you know, dealt with very well. Um, a lot of bodies were thrown into rivers or disposed of other ways, unofficially. Um, so the death count is somewhere between 39 and 300. The official death count is 39 people, but most people believe that many more were actually killed. And Greenwood itself? So Greenwood itself was burned to the ground. More than 35 blocks were completely trashed and burned to the ground, um, including a lot of churches and buildings as well as houses. Hmm. What was the long-term impact of the Tulsa Race Massacre? Sure. So the long-term impact of the Tulsa Race Massacre, it really helped slow down the desegregation process. So there were two options the government could take in the aftermath of this really traumatic event. They could either highlight it as an example of why we need anti-lynching laws and police reform, because you know obviously people are being hurt and killed and entire communities are destroyed by our corrupt systems. And this approach could have swayed a lot of whites into supporting anti-lynching laws out of righteous indignation, if nothing else, or they could cover up the incident and not use it as an example. And this approach clearly shows white supremacists that it's okay to terrorize communities and continue lynchings because the government isn't going to do anything about it. And that's the approach that the U.S. and Oklahoma governments both took, and it had negative repercussions for a long time. Hmm. Um, you read a, a piece by uh, an academic, Lisa Cook, who talked about other ramifications of, uh, of this. Uh, could you talk a little bit about her findings? 
Yeah, for sure. So Lisa Cook um, was researching the impact of like racism on inventions. And so she was comparing a Plessy v. Ferguson case and how that impacted inventions to the Tulsa massacre and how that impacted um, inventions and patent filing from black communities. And she found that um, with Plessy v. Ferguson, there was a sharp decrease in inventions from black inventors uh, because many black inventors were closed out of so many spaces. They couldn't get into libraries, um, into attorneys' offices, uh, they couldn't communicate with other inventors, and many of them also lost their jobs. But she thinks that decision had less of an impact on inventions than the Tulsa race massacre. And the difference, she says, lies in the methods of deterrence used by those in power. In Plessy v. Ferguson, the deterrence method was the law. So African Americans used workarounds, like Lisa Cook points out. She says they could still invent things and then pretend to be the assistant to a white or Native American, so the invention would be approved. While this was horribly unfair, the people were still fighting, or they were so used to fighting against unfair systems, and it was something tangible to fight. But in the aftermath of the Tulsa massacre, there wasn't anything tangible to fight. There was just the knowledge the government wouldn't protect you if you aren't white, and not even like Black Wall Street is protected. And so Cook makes it clear that the level of like exhaustion and fear was so high that no one even wanted to invent anything anymore. And that kind of mindset is much more detrimental to invention rates than just laws. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Our next topic is um, I'd like to talk about is a speech given by Martin Luther King Jr. Um, where he talked about uh, the, the title of the speech was some of our discontent for the Negro Revolution, why 1963? Uh, and in which he's talking specifically about uh, civil unrest by African-Americans in 1963. Um, MJ, what were some of the factors that King argues are responsible for that civil unrest in 1963? Um, so when I was reading the article, um, he had mentioned that people of color had endured um, evil for decades, and so um, a, like a quote from the article was, why must the blackness of nighttime collect in our mouth? Why must we always chase grief in our own blood? End quote. I believe like what he meant by this is that people of color were silenced for a very long time. And so every time, like since their mouths were kept shut and like that they tasted their own grief, it's like as soon as they spoke up, they were silenced because they didn't want to hear it from them and they just like discriminated their grief against them. And so like another thing that was that happened was probably the slow pace of school desegregation. Um, what is desegregation? It is to let like schools to have racial equality in them instead of just like all white schools. Um, they so I <laughs> No, that's fine. Um, what about economic trends? Economic uh, does King talk about economic trends leading to the civil um, civil disorder? Yeah, and so um, what he mentions is that the that white men are like receiving more than African Americans because the like people of color are at the bottom of the economic ladder. And so if you were just an average of African-American, you were born into 
deprivation and they struggle to escape their circumstances. And so like another issue was like the unemployment that African-Americans had. There are two and a half times as many jobless African-Americans than white. Um, and so also mostly the employers would not hire them because they would tell them that they had no place there. And they, the only, although they're, Although the foundation was built on slave labor, they still just discriminated them. So how did King uh, think about how uh, African-Americans should or, or have been responding to this, uh, all of this discrimination and, and maltreatment? Um, he says that we should deal with it with nonviolence because he believes that nonviolence is more powerful than, um, than violence because he thinks that, oh, so a quote is, nonviolence is a powerful weapon. It is a weapon unique in history and it cuts without wounding and ennobles the man who wields it, end quote. So meaning that you can get your point across without the need of violence and if you just act out in violence it's just going to make the issue a lot bigger than it was before and like this became a triumphant tactic of the Negro Revolution of 1963. Mm -hmm. So a contemporary of Martin Luther King uh, gave a speech almost a, exactly just a few months later mm -hmm. Malcolm X gives a very famous speech the ballot or the bullet. Um, very different approach to uh, to King, um, and Malcolm X specifically talks about black nationalism. What does he mean by black nationalism? So I believe that black like nationalism that means is an African American should have control over their own political rights. Um, it is also their identity and who they are. Um, it also it can be more of as a self-help philosophy, as Malcolm X says, because he, oh, because like, like whether they're like wherever they are, like whether in a black community or a white community, like they like they just like become so fed up or something. Yeah. So what is Malcolm X's approach? What does he think of of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's? Uh, advocacy of, of nonviolence. Um, so he there, he mentions um, quote we need to stop singing we need to start singing end quote meaning that um, chanting and protesting is like something is like they should he feels that they should do more about it than just taking it and just dealing with it so and like he should make it like their that people should make it like their own business and they should be able to protect themselves against white aggression and this is where it clashes with MLK's because he preached that nonviolence is better but he but Malcolm also says that revolution can get bloody and but this does this revolution doesn't have to be okay um, so is he talking about perhaps economic uh, warfare instead? Yeah, okay. I think so. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, so, 
So he talked about how that if you were like the like role of that's the question, right? The role like the economic okay. The role of economics in black nationalism is that they should own and operate and control what goes on in their community instead of being dependent on like white Americans because if you weren't smart enough, like or yeah, if you weren't smart enough, um, you weren't able to get into it because they're like because you weren't like educated enough because school systems didn't let them into that like their system, and so he wanted people to re-educate themselves and like know the importance of like spending in a sense, and so like and if you were like misguided, you spent it on like the man, the man meaning like white American and um, yeah. So it would be better spent in the black community? Yes, because he wants, he'd rather have you build your own community and like, like you can have a small convenience store and it can only expand more and more and like get bigger because he brought um, that one company, I don't remember the name of the company, but it's, it's like one of the car companies and like they were, they were very small, but as soon as like word got out, like they were expanding, getting bigger and like became worldwide. Um, so Malcolm X is talking about the same thing that Martin Luther King Jr. is, um, the civil unrest, the, the, the riots and, and demonstrations in 1963 and 1964. Um, what does Malcolm X think is going to bring an end to those riots? What is it that people truly want or need, according to him? Um, he says that, like, that we have the power to change that, like, the power to vote for the better people and the power to, like, change the government if need be and to stop um, voting for the wrong people because, like, it's because they've been misled or convinced or like given these false promises. And so they're just tired of being discriminated against and just they're frustrated and want action. So uh, we know shortly after this speech, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is, is passed by Congress. Um, based on this speech, do you think uh, Malcolm X would would have been happy with that? Would, would that meet his, his requirements? Um, in a sense, it did, because, like, I mean, it's civil rights, like, whenever I think of civil rights, I kind of think of basic human rights, because, um, and that's what he wanted, but, like, even now, like, today, like, people are, they're still getting discriminated against. Mm. Well, Thank you, MJ Barley. Um, that leads us to our, our last topic, which is sort of today. Where, where do we stand um, today, especially in terms of economics, uh, as, as well as uh, other civil rights? Um, <clears throat> Justin, uh, what is, you know, we, we read about, we hear about uh, inequality, economic inequality in the United States. What is the racial wealth gap in America today? 
Um, so for the tip of the iceberg, I'd say the racial wealth gap is how we associate um, poverty with the African American community and financial prosperity with more of the white community. That's just the tip of the iceberg. But the racial wealth gap in America today is the lack of ownership within the black community and the lack of education of black men and women. And very importantly, the presence of discrimination when applying for wealth generating avenues nowadays. So I had to watch a Netflix, uh, in a Netflix show called The Racial Wealth Gap and explained, it's on Netflix, it's 15 minutes. It explains how um, black men and women are not hired for jobs um, because of the fact that they are African-American. They're not treated fairly in the interview process. And uh, I know the other day in class, we talked about affirmative action and diversity and there being a quota that you have to meet. But once that quota is met, they're usually, it doesn't get too much higher after that. There's not as many African-American minority or other minorities accepted maybe into college or in the workplace after that, maybe let's say 10% diversity quota is met. So the racial wealth gap starts um, back, it dates back to about, I'd say 19, the uh, early 1900s when African-Americans first got free. Well, well, late after they, a little bit after they first um, got freedom, they were asked, um, the Lincoln administration had a general go into the black community and said, uh, what would you like? Uh, what would you like in forms of reparations? This is when reparations were first talked about. And it was 20 uh, African-American leaders. They said four, 40 acres and a mule was their, um, was their ask of the general. So they, I don't know. I personally don't know if the land was taken from the South and the white people that lived on that land was moved away, but they were told to, but they were given land. And after Lincoln died, um, Andrew Johnson reversed that bill that was signed to give the black people land. And it started, uh, oh my gosh, why am I doing this shit? <laughs> it, started a it started a long history of um, basically the racial wealth gap and it started to go white people started to go up on the ladder and black people stayed the same or continued to go down. So let me ask you this question. You said that originally the idea was to perhaps um, make up for slavery by granting land to formerly enslaved people. So that, and, and so they would actually own the land, but then under Andrew Johnson's administration that, that policy was abandoned. Why is land ownership or, or the lack of land ownership so crucial to understanding the wealth gap between white Americans and black Americans? Well, that's simple. Uh, if you think about the term of assets, if you own land, um, property, businesses, the, they're, they are appreciating assets. So land will go up in value. However, uh, like pieces of art, some pieces of art such as jewelry, um, it'll go up, but that's like, that's a gamble sometimes, but most of the time, or if you get a car or something, cars are depreciated assets. So as soon as you go off the lot, the value's down, it costs less. As, however, land goes up. So the importance of wealth is, say you buy a piece of land back in 1900s, um, the wealth on that, on that land, you can, uh, over generations, 
you give it to your kids, now it's worth more. So back then, you weren't allowed, being black after you, after they were granted freedom, they weren't allowed to buy purchase land in certain communities, which is a term of a practice called redlining. So redlining is they, uh, you take a map, you put a section, you take a section, okay, they are, they are not allowed to come past this line and get a mortgage loan. You're not allowed to come past this line. You have to rent to come over here. Or if we're trying to sell you a house, we won't sell you a house in this area. And these areas, over time, over time, these areas started to look uh, totally different. I um, personally call them red zones. So these red zones are usually on the other side of what are known as train tracks nowadays. Um, it's usually industrial areas. If you see a factory in a big city, it's usually around a low-income area. Public housing nowadays is in that those areas. So just being in these areas where the income is low, the resources are low, and then in the other areas on the other side of the tracks where the white people lived back in the 1900s, the early 1900s, the mid-1900s, the area, the, um, the prosperity and the money and the resources were gone into that area. So the racial gap, the home ownership is so important because if you own if you own land, your money went up and you were, you were, you were, um, I can't find the word, but you were able to access those resources in that area you lived in, such as the schools in that area, how we talked about the other day, the schools in that area and the other amenities that come with living in a nice area. So you talked about redlining. Who drew these lines um, on the map? Redlining, well, so the people who drew these lines were, at the time, the white men in charge. So they drew these lines and said, okay, let, to keep segregation here, we are gonna offer them loans, cert, cert, um, really subprime loans, which is a loan that started off with a small interest rate. That way people with lower credit scores could get a loan to buy a house, but then over time, the more you had to use that, the more that loan stayed around, the higher the interest rate got it, it became to insane prices, which ultimately became into the, um, the crisis in 2008, where the mortgage loan crisis and a lot of um, loans had to be forgiven, a lot of other money had to be borrowed, a lot of people were evicted, but this started off long ago back when red zones were first. Right, so so the, the redlining was done by the Federal Housing Administration when they were first starting to give out loans, right? Um, and so the federal government would help, would subsidize loans so that people could buy houses, but only in areas that were outside of these red zones, which happened to be white-owned neighborhoods where black people were, weren't sold uh, houses. Um, so overwhelmingly African Americans have to rent instead of own and so then they're uh, they're not able to pass that wealth onto their children. Other other explanations for the racial wealth gap? Um, family background is probably the most um, the most viable explanation for the wealth gap today. Um, Generational wealth is a big thing talked about in the black community, in all communities, really, but in the black community, um, we 
read about it a lot. If you are born in a rich family, you are more likely to be able to sustain um, a life or in the same living class that you grew up in, you're around the, the better schools, you get the better amenities. So you can stay in that same class. But if you were born in the poorer families, then you are more likely to be able to, well, you are more likely to stay in that poverty as you go on, and you will most likely pass that on to your kids. As far as other things such as social class that I touched on a little bit, that if you're in that social class where there's a lot of poverty, and it talks about in the Netflix in the Netflix show how if you are one of the outliers and you're one of the uh, poverty the people that were born into poverty and you make it out that you are usually the as a as a black in a black household in a black family that you are most likely the richest in your family so now everyone in your family that are poor is coming to you for help now and that's the way that social uh, class plays into it that everybody's asking you for money now and you don't want to be the bad cousin that forgets about your family so you help out and then now you're spending your money the money that you make you're spending it now you're right back into the poverty where you were born into oh. um, does gender play a role here does it matter if you're uh, african-american male versus an african-american female um it does to a certain extent as far as education, as far as education in a study that was done by the Washington Post, it says that um, African American women actually tested higher on standardized tests, even though well per um, per household, like there was a study done per household that at a certain income, that the African American women in a certain in a certain um, class tested higher in standardized tests rather than white women. But then when you look at the jobs that more white women and more white males were hired over the black women who tested higher than white men and white women. So gender plays a factor, but that, to carry on to that, that would lead as a segue that standardized testing is not a good measuring stick to see where people will end up because the people with the higher test scores did not end up becoming the people with the better jobs. But that is, um, that's just one of the things at the tip of the iceberg, how gender plays a role into the gap for the whole. So uh, based on your research, how comfortable are you saying that the racial discrimination is, is clearly still a, a, a big factor in the, in the wealth gap today? Um, based on my research uh, and my experiences as, as a black man, uh, racial discrimination is a big factor, um, not to be like too like, I don't know, I don't want to like be too like descriptive about it, but my mom, she named me Justin just because you can have a friendly name that works in the workplace and not a ghetto name that wouldn't, you know, sustain in a community around white people. But um, as far as my research says, um, your check, uh, it's in, the, in an article I read, it says you're checked as soon as you walk in the door. The way you walk, the way you talk, your hair sometimes, tattoos, um, your demeanor when you talk uh, can decide whether you get a job, um, whether you get a mortgage loan, uh, whether you get whether you get accepted into the good school, or whether you're able to live in this area. So, the racial discrimination is obviously uh, is obviously a big factor. It's obviously a problem today that needs to be addressed. It still goes on, maybe to. Uh, maybe to a lesser extent, there's no lynching going on anymore. Not that 
not even reported lynching, but there's no lynchings going on anymore today, but racial discrimination still is going on today as in, in the business realm. So what are some ways that the wealth gap could be corrected? Um, ways the wealth gap could be corrected have already started actually. Um, Georgetown University has actually started a thing back in 2019 that's actually been called slavery reparations. So they did a good job of documenting who they uh, bought and sold as, as slave ownership back in Chicago, back when slavery was a thing. So now the descendants of these people have actually been granted uh, more tuition, well, more um, scholarships and more financial aid and other indirect and other indirect benefits, not just me granting you a check of say a certain amount of money just to give you, just to say here take the check and um, go on go on do whatever you want. So there's also been a uh, Escopia Italian Seminary in Virginia that has funded a scholarship plan as a form of effort, as a form of restoration for descendants of enslaved people. So reparations have already started and it's already starting to give the education, which is probably the most, the most viable resource into closing the gap today. And those processes have already been started. Richard, thank you very much. All right, so I'm gonna conclude uh, this discussion by asking each of you how you would answer the question we started with. When did African-Americans become full citizens of the United States? Maggie? Let's start with you. Well, I think that many people would consider and recognize the period after the Civil Rights Movement um, as when African Americans became full citizens of the United States. Um, at that point, we're mostly desegregated. Um, they have a lot more like ownership. They can own homes. Um, they legally can't be discriminated against based on race, etc. Um, but I would honestly argue that we still have a long way to go before African Americans become full citizens, before they have this equity and equality in the U.S. Um, in my eyes, it's hard to change a system that is so inherently built on this racism and discrimination, and adding a few patches and amendments to that system isn't going to help anything in the long run. Um, Many Americans today, like white Americans, believe that racism is a thing of the past. And if it does exist today, then it's aimed at them. Um, many people are still like attempting to grapple with the fact that we're not like actually in this post-racial society, um, like this utopia that they think happened um, after like the passing of like the 14th and 15th amendments. Mm -hmm. um, and so race is still a topic that obviously needs to get like spoken about and acknowledged, but often like times when you try, at least that I found, it's met with like, why does race need to be involved? Um, and it's because, you know, it, it needs to be like talked about and it's often from people who have, like they don't have that experience. So they, they don't like know, they don't understand like why it's like such a big deal because they don't have that experience and they think it's just over. Um, and so like obviously at like we got our first black president Barack Obama and after the rise of Obama large numbers of white Americans became convinced that to the extent that racism remains a factor in American life um, that white people were primary victims 
like even with the Black Lives Matter movement, white Americans, I've noticed, like work really hard to like upend this movement, um, like, you know, calling it racist towards white people or that all lives matter, which like nobody is saying they don't, but um, black Americans need the most help and the most like platforms right now um, for change. Um, and so there are two potential outcomes like for this movement, like one it should be focused on policing and prisons, um, which is something Americans have used and tried to use to suppress um, like suppress African-Americans gaining this equality. Um, like the literal, like the most basic demand of this movement is for the police to stop killing black people and white Americans still try to upend this movement and get upset and argue it. And I ask like, why do they do that if not to keep black Americans in the same place they're at now? Um, so men, like many Americans would say that they probably believe in racial equality but believing in racial equality is very different than actually taking the steps. And um, like according to The Atlantic, the median net worth of white families is more than 170,000 and that of black families is less than 20,000. Um, and like with COVID, like this has just gotten worse. Um, like COVID has like disproportionately affected like black businesses because black businesses often um, hire like um, black workers. Um, so that has just affected black communities as a whole. And um, and so because it's like affecting black Americans in that way, the federal government has tried to downplay it. Um, and like even to the like to the point when people are saying like, oh, we're black Americans, they're they're immune to the virus, which actually you might think of it as a joke, but it's affecting them in like getting treatment and like help for the virus. Um, and many people still think of racism as like a personal failing rather than like a systemic one. But um, just recently, I don't know if anyone has seen this, but at Newburgh High, students were in a group chat participating in a online slave trade, basically selling their classmates. Um, and they're basically reducing the worth of their African-American peers to how it was, you know, pre-Civil War, like property. They're treating them like that. And it's often not a behavior that you're just born with. It's a learned trait. It's a learned behavior from these generations of people who believe in racism and discrimination. And so there's, I just think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in this system. Daphne, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, some other discrepancies that we see within our society is the disproportionate amount of black people within our incarceration system and the fact that they're often given stricter charges within you know, the court system. Um, as, as many people have said, our justice system is, you know, like many people have said that our justice system is like broken. Um, and that's one of the um, aspects of it. Um, <clears throat> and again, we still see white supremacists today. I don't believe that we're in a post-racial society because um, during the Black Lives Matter movement, Again, we had the all lives matter, but some people continue to say white lives matter. Um, it's like walking into like a cancer or breast cancer awareness like thing and saying all cancer matters. It's like obviously, like, but like we're bringing awareness to the specific group. Um, and again, as Justin talked about, um, like there are a lot of um, I like internalized things of 
I'm trying to find the word basically. Like naming yourself a, a name, or not naming yourself, but like being given a name um, that is traditionally given to white people to counteract the, um, I'm trying to find the word, but like the low key racism, like in part, like within white people. Um, we are way over in terms of time, so um, I'll, I'll give permission to anybody who needs to step out to do so. Um, but so go ahead and do that. But uh, Mia, do you want to say anything uh, about how would you answer the question? I think that Maggie and Kathy answered it perfectly, um, and on behalf of everyone. Um, of course, people would legally say that we, um, black, um, African Americans were given, were given the right to be full citizens in 1868, but we actually do have a long way to go in terms of, are we just saying it, or are we making the steps to ensure that they feel and they know and they are treated like they are full citizens. You know, I think that we pretty much covered what I was gonna say. Okay. MJ, did you wanna add anything from your perspective? Um, yeah, just like an example, cause, um, so from like reading these articles and like comparing them to today's political views, like they're still facing oppression and inequality. Like when will they stop facing these issues? Like during the BLM protests, they had sent out the National Guard. And so when there was the protests at the Capitol, nobody was deployed. Nobody was really there. Um, I mean, yeah, like people got arrested, but it was only six of them. But like comparing it like to the BLM protests, many were ar arrested and like some are missing and they're still missing. Um, also like, they believe that like, I think that some people believe that like white privilege isn't a thing, but it kind of is a thing because like if you like say like it's a person of color just walking down the like like street and they look s suspicious, like they're going to get tackled down or they might get shot or they just might get like like injected with ketamine or like etc. Um, also like when when it comes to like white Americans like they can just be like given water or if their wounds are treated or like they just like get in the car like just peacefully and not really like aggressively. So, and I just believe that like we kind of are built off false promises. And so like, and like, I think most of them want to control how they live and how like who they are and yeah. Thank you. Justin, you get the last word. Looks like we have to call it there. Thank you for uh, your attention.